just sliding past 7 o'clock and another huge show on tap for you tonight. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and this is a big one. Ira, unfortunately, not in studio with us. You had a really, really busy weekend. Well, really week in general. Um, why don't you tell us where you are and where you've been? I'm in Las Vegas right now, but I was just in New York for four days for the PGA Championships at Bethpage State Park in Long Island. Uh, walked uh, walked all four rounds with Brooks uh, that he played Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, first two rounds with Tiger, so it was pretty exciting to be out there. Um, I was at Beth, I was at Shinnecock last year for the U.S. Open, and this was great. That it seems like now the uh, uh, the golf would like to have a major in the New York area every year between either altering the PGA and because next year the U.S. Open is at Wingfoot. No, they, it's funny how it has worked out. This is only the second time it's ever been uh, the U.S. Open, I believe, though, at um, at Bethpage Black. Want to know what's funny, Ira? Actually, the gentleman who's on before us, Scott Greenberg, he had said he's played the course a few times, and he said it's the most exhausting thing of your life. Like, by the time you're, like, on 16, you're just absolutely shot. You just walked it four times. So tell me how you're feeling, like, physically after going through that. Well, it's it's a 7,400-yard course that plays like a 7,700-yard course. It's great to go to and for a tournament like this. Shinnecock was like an Oakmont and Pittsburgh are like almost like small postage stamps compared to this. That it's like straight. You literally are walking forever, and it's straight. But it's good because it does thin the crowds out, so you don't get as hard. It's very difficult to watch. It's very difficult, but it's still um, the length of the course does help it. But it's up. I think the hills are the thing to tire it out. You literally go from a tee box on a hill, walk down a hill, then walk up to the green up another hill. It is just hill after hill and that's why the golfers got tired because they're doing the same thing. There's some courses you go to and the at Riviera, the gallery is walking sort of on the hill. It's harder for the gallery to walk than actually the golfers. In this tournament, it's hard. the golfers are exhausted. I mean, you saw Tiger was really laboring, I think, even on Friday. Uh, and, and, and even Brooks might have got tired. It was when it got windy and, uh, and it was just, it was, it was a long uh, tournament in terms of walking and uh, but it was it was very exciting to be at that a lot of energy from the New York fans so I love being there no and I, I can't wait to hear all about that we'll do that in just a second um, we do have a great guest once again around 730 we're going to be joined by John Eisenberg amazing author I want you to tell us a little bit about John well, he came out with a book called, he's been a writer for the Dallas Morning News, Baltimore Sun, a sports writer, but he came out with a book in October called The League. It's how five rivals created the NFL, and it's really about the founding of the NFL. And if everybody, if you're an NFL fan out there, you should read this book. I mean, it's great. It talks about the different, the five, uh, it talks about just generally what happened, and, and it's funny how, like, I'll, we'll go over some of the facts, but how the New York Giants were bought for $500, and uh, the, the fact that pro football was a laughing stock for decades before, and to think what it is now, it's like when you look for perspective and now where the NFL is and where it came from, it's just shocking. And he really lays it out, and it's a really great story. It's a story is great, and you know, he presented it in the book, and it's won all these awards. It's one of the best books of the year, and the paperback comes out in October 2019, so or 2020, actually. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's, been, a, it's been a very popular book. Um, yep, and I can't wait to talk to him. Don't forget, follow us uh, on Instagram. You can see all of Ira's exploits. It's at Ira on Sports on Instagram. You can see some uh, pictures from Bethpage Black. Okay, um, tell us about, you know, I always like to hear about uh, your escapades getting in and out. So how did all that go uh, with you uh, over the weekend? 
Well, first of all, I, this course was easy to get to. I know that sounds crazy, but it was like an hour from the city. You get off the train, and there's this bus, gigantic bus lot that they take from the train station. It was like a five-minute bus ride, but right, in this, right into the, to the uh, golf course. And uh, so that was easy. And when the, the day I went three days by myself, and I went with a friend on the fourth day, and you could park. And I noticed where the houses were. They're letting people park. Uh, there was no parking lot, of course, around Bethpage, but you could pay 50 bucks and park near in a house. And and uh, I mean, these people really somehow packed in 100 cars in a small little house. But anyway, that was weak. But it was, it was not as difficult as you would imagine in terms of getting there. And then it, it was so well done. It was like going to Disney World with how they had the box. People were lined up and the buses and everything. So I was very impressed with that. They had the largest merchandise tent I've ever seen. I mean, it wasn't a tent. It was a shopping mall. But there was nowhere else to buy a hat or anything. But it, it was, I've been to all these, I mean, 30, 40 golf tournaments. I've never seen a merchandise. Like, you looked at it, it's like one of the biggest tents you've ever seen, let alone merchandise tents. Everything you could imagine is they sold there. So I was very impressed with that. I think the food was a complete disaster. I mean, everyone, there was not enough food carts. I mean, I was thinking I was just going to go get, like, uh, lemonades and uh, pretzels and sell them for, like, double price. <laughs> because there was no, there was there was very few food carts at all on the whole park at all when you walk around and very even like the quote VIP Wanamaker Club had like three places to eat like it was not really what like you compare it to Honda trust me you you could the Honda there's food everywhere there was no food anywhere this you really had to and it was a lot of walking so people were hungry and thirsty there were no scoreboards on the course anywhere does the Honda in West Palm Beach or even Riviera you see scoreboards everywhere there might have been four or five holes there might have been scoreboards. Like, you had no idea. When Dustin Johnson was making the move on Sunday, you just hear rumors. Oh, I think Johnson got a, an eagle. I got an albatross. Like, people were saying, because your cell service is so bad, you couldn't get Internet. You didn't know what was going on, so just the rumors were spreading <laughs> left and right. And uh, um, I did, it was funny, though. For three days, I walked around the course. And I didn't, I didn't go with anybody who else would be crazy enough to go do what I do. But anyway, so I was there and you could like hear stories from everyone talking. And I just think it was so funny when someone was saying like, um, they were like when Brooks was trying to eye up a 200 foot shot uh, up a hill on a blind green and a guy saying, well, when I have this shot, this is what I do. Oh, well, this is really what you do. Like you're going to do what Brooks does. That's exactly like, like maybe you should go out and give him some advice, you know, comparing to what you have. And like everyone was a maven about how to handle each each hole, it was just, it's funny when you see that. I mean, at one time I was at this one hole, and behind me, and I'm like, got a perfect picture angle, and I'm ready to take it, and this guy's talking about, you hear about the personalized, they're all complaining about something. Some guy was complaining about how he's getting tests for this, for some whatever, because he has all these medical problems. And I just realized, I turned right around, and he has a cigar in his mouth, an ice cream sandwich in one hand, a pretzel in the other hand, and a beer <laughs> in his arm. I'm like, how are you holding all these things? <laughs> but it was fun to be out there and, uh, and, and to actually walk around and see Brooks and, uh, and, and Tiger and Molinari and Speed. I mean, if you, I just stayed with that group, with the first two groups. So the first two days, I saw Brooks, uh, Tiger, and Molinari, and then it was with Speed for the third day. So I got to really see a lot of, a lot of great stuff. And it's a weird course. The first hole, you play the first hole, and then you have to cross a road, and then you play the next 13 holes, and then, or 15 holes, or 14 holes, and then you have to go back across the road for the final holes. 
there's no water on a course except for one par three, and it's not even in play. And there's four par threes, but two par fives. And the rumor was that the rough was gonna, not going to be that, was going to be, you know, not cut like at the U.S. Open type rough. But mm-hmm. it, was, it was high. If you notice during the whole watching it, when people went into the rough, they just punched it out. Like they couldn't make the green. So the rough was difficult. And uh, it, was, uh, it was definitely a great, I just love being there. I thought it was exciting to be at the course. Um, and it is fun walking. And when you walk these most golf courses, you see big houses on the left, big houses on the right. They're in country clubs. This is in a state park. Like, there are people, this is people who are like, this is just a park. It is not, <laughs> there's no one living around it. There's no houses. Yeah. There's nothing. There's no manicured. And that's what made it difficult to walk on the side because usually it's like, say, at the Honda. There's homes around there. So everything's cut. Everything's flat. You literally were on a hike crawling down mountains. I mean, I my ankles are killing me. So it was it was definitely a struggle to do, but it was luckily it was dry all four days. Wasn't too hot, so I thought the weather was great. And only on Sunday it got really really windy. Um, we're listening to Iron Sports. This is ninety five nine, the True Oldies Channel. It's seven twelve. I'm Mike Balsamo. Seven thirty. John Eisenberg, um, author of the League, is going to join us right here on on the True Oldies Channel. Um, so get into it now. Obviously, um, you, you, you enjoyed following uh, Tiger a lot, but it really worked out for you how you got Brooks as well um, You know, on day one. Where'd you go from there? Well, I, Tiger, I stayed with, what I did was on day one, I just went Brooks, Tiger, and Molinari. So I stayed with them the whole time. And Tiger started out at 845. And like, you know, coming off the Masters win, everyone's excited. The crowd, even at 845 in the morning, which means people had to get to leave at their house, like 530 in the morning, totally packed, thousands of people. They had 50,000 on Sunday. I think they probably had 30, 40,000 that day on Thursday with Tiger. And the first hole he does, he double bogeys. I mean, it was a total disaster. But the thing was, I think he enjoyed playing with Brooks and Molinari because both of those guys like to play fast. And so I think that was, first of all, it was a benefit to Brooks because Brooks was certainly not intimidated by Tiger at all. He seems to have He's the really type not. of mentality that's perfect to play with Tiger, doesn't mind the crowds, that actually uses negativity of the crowds to motivate him. And I think he likes playing with Tiger because they do like to play fast. Like, they, you, just, like if you, you will have to hustle because when they get up to the ball, they're not like looking around, they're whatever. They are going and they're letting it rip. And even when they're in difficult situations, like sometimes these golfers spend forever when they're in the woods or in the rough. I mean, they just go up there, they look a little bit, and they go. So I think that helped him there. But uh, Tiger started in the 10. He double bogeyed. And then, um, and then, and then, he, dub- then he double bogeyed later on another hole. And, uh, but on, on the, he came back that day. He had an eagle on uh, the fourth hole. It was a great drive, great approach. So he was sitting at minus one. And you're like, okay, then you're, I thought he was in great shot. Like, there's a point where he's like, they had, not everybody was teed off, but he was like 15th. And then it all fell apart. He missed a short putt on five for a bogey, went to even. And then on seven, he missed a 10-foot putt for par, so it went to plus one. And then on, uh, on the par three eighth, he had just horrendous shots all, shots all over the place and bogeyed again, plus two. So really, he was at a point where he was at my, my one under, and in a few holes, he dropped a two over going into Friday. But he was just in 40th place, and Brooks was out at 12. He's thinking he's not going to win the tournament unless Brooks collapses. But a second place was like at four and five under. So Tiger was still in the mix. And then on Friday, he was starting at um, 
145. So you felt like, okay, he's, you know, he's going to start at a better time. Totally packed. The crowds, that was the best, biggest crowds of, even on, third, on Saturday and Sunday. I, it was very hard to get around with Tiger. Um, he, he had, but he was terrible. We had six bogeys, three birdies. He missed the cut. Um, it was, uh, he drove, like, on, he started on, on the second hole. He drove in the rough and bogeyed, went to a plus three. And then uh, the holes he should have birdied, he missed some putts. He was, he was just, everything was wrong. He was driving correct, incorrectly. He wasn't making any putts. Um, and, like, on the par seven, on the par four seventh, he missed an easy, another easy putt, and uh, then he was driving poorly. And it, at one point, he was plus five, but plus four, and the cut was four. And uh, you're like, okay, he's still there. But then he, he missed another short putt on 12, went to five. And so you saw, you heard, kept hearing where the cut, the cut was either going to be three or four. So Tiger was still in that mix the whole time, so he's battling to make the cut. Well, at the same time, Brooks is at minus 12. So there's <laughs> points where you're watching Tiger and Brooks for two whole days, and Brooks is 17 strokes ahead of him crazy and uh and then at one point he finished up he was a plus five after 14 and then he was just waiting to get that one birdie to go make the cut line 15 16 17 18 he wasn't able to do it um and uh but he you know uh, patrick reed sergio garcia bubba watson duffner dishon blow um they all missed the cut rory was a plus three uh jason day was a plus three i mean it was it was like one of those things where brooks was playing a different tour those first two days when brooks is at minus 12 he's playing a completely different tournament than everybody else else he was it was like easy to him whereas and when he was playing with tiger like tiger is struggling at every hole brooks is just hitting every drive in the middle of the fairway hitting it to the green if he's missing his putt it's like a 10-foot putt i mean he didn't even have the first two days it didn't even feel like brooks had was even like trying to save par i mean everything was just <laughs> easy to him and that's why he was up by so and everyone else is struggling you saw mall and these are great golfers he's playing with molinari and woods and they're hitting the ball all over the place they're missing putts they're struggling and brooks is like this is easy i mean it's like he's playing one course and everybody else is playing a different course um all right so then i'm guessing from there on out you were you were on brooks kepka well, that's right. It, trust me, I would have had a long day Saturday if Tiger made the cut. I really wanted him <laughs> to, but I would have had to come out, not had to, but I would want to come out at 8 in the morning to watch him play. And then he, I then know which day for the leader, so it's been like 8 to 6. But the fact is that really just if you wanted to watch Rory early, but it was just better for that easier just to come out and watch. And they didn't tee off till like 2.30 in the afternoon. So because it's a little later and they could play later, um, I was surprised it was so late. But if there was a playoff on Sunday, they, it got dark. Like I thought it was weird that they teed off so late because it's still like right now it's still May. It's not June and July when it's like gets late, lighter later. So it was, I thought it was, it was a little risky to start so late. But uh, Brooks Kepka is, uh, is amazing. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise. And we've talked about him on this show forever. Um, he's won four now of the last seven majors, uh, two Opens, two U.S. Opens, two PGA tournaments. And you're saying, well, he's won four majors. Gary, uh, Gary Player won nine. Tom Watson won eight. Arnold Palmer won seven. Phil Mickelson is regarded as like the greatest golfer in whatever, second best behind uh, uh, Tiger of our generation, five. Seve Barraceras, five. Ernie Els, four. Rory's won four. Jordan Spieth's won three. I mean, and look at these great golfers that we talk about. Jason Day, Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, and, and Justin Rose. These are all been number one in the past two years. They all have only won one, one, uh, one major. And now, I mean, he's won four. I mean, he was, he is one, I mean, in the one, and he's also come second in the Masters this year. He was, uh, it's just amazing, he's was sixth in the British Open last year. I mean, he's either winning or in the top ten in almost every major. Now, he's only won five tournaments and four majors. But if you ask anyone, I mean, Dustin Johnson's won 20 tournaments, but only one major. You, certainly how golf is played, you want to win the majors. Um, 
on Saturday, he had a seven-shot lead over Spieth, 12-5. And, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was interesting. If you looked at the leaders on Saturday, Berger, Scott, Kepka all played the Honda. So it was nice to see all the Honda people because I, of course, like the Honda. But, I mean, Kepka started on Saturday strong. He, thought, you know, he said he was going to probably coast, wasn't going to take any aggressive. But he missed easy birdies on one, three, and four. He had birdies on two and five. So he could have been at like 17, 18 under. Uh, but, uh, but he was really cruising along. He got it up to on the... Uh, uh, like on the 13th hole, it was a par five. He hit it into the trees. You're like, this could be a disaster. This is the double bogey that's coming. But he was able to get it out and actually birdied the hole. Um, and on the 15th hole, you could see, like, whenever he struggled, he was able to recover. But Jordan Spieth did not deal with the crowds well. And when he is, and I can see watching him, it was my first time I really watched Walker for 18 holes. Whenever he's not enjoying how he's playing, he just rushes. And he went to 15, and people were singing God Bless America, Drunken Fans, it's late Saturday afternoon. He literally went to the hole, didn't even take a practice swing, and just hit one of the worst shots you could have ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he was really just rushing at the end and not, not really focused at all. Whereas uh, Brooks, look, he choked, as admittedly, on Sunday. He did not play well for four holes, but, but, for a go, but he didn't have the meltdown. He's still the champion. He was able to stop the slide that, that everyone else was going against. But um, the one thing that hurt Brooks was on, he was at 13 over, 13 under, and then on the 16th, he missed a short putt to kick him to 12. But he's still at 12 um, going into Sunday. Varner is at 5 under, um, this jazz... <laughs> guy is at five under Luke List is at five and Dustin Johnson is at five. Now Dustin Johnson is the only guy when you look at that board saying he's the only one if Brooks drops down to nine or eight, maybe he'll get up to eight. That's the only one I thought that actually could shoot. Because if you looked at the scores, people were shooting like sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy one, seventy two. No one was going to sixty two. This was not there's only two par fives on the course. So you're not really going to shoot these low scores and the way the tournament was, I didn't see there was no water. There was no double bogeys it looked like for Brooks. So you really would have it had to be like the perfect thing that happened. And it almost did happen. Um, he missed an easy. He bogeyed the first hole, and then he missed it. Then on, on the on the fourth, which is a par five, he was he got that back. So you think you're fine. Five through nine, he was cruising. So he's still at twelve. You know, twelve under. Everything's fine. But then on ten, he. Um, he, he actually got a birdie to go to 13, but from 11 to 14, 11 to 15, he had four straight bogeys, um, just terrible shots all over the place. And I, something that the media hasn't talked about was that on the 11th hole, Varner hit the ball into the rough, and it was like on the left side where there were no fans. And Kafka was, of course, rolling along and everything, but then they had to look for the ball. And I know there's this rule that's five minutes, it was ten minutes, these rules. It was almost like 15 minutes looking for the ball, looking for Varner's ball. Now, he's at this point 81, like he was 11 over. And Brooks is then totally off his game, and he came back. And I think that's one of the things I noticed when I saw uh, Tiger Riviera looking for a lost ball, threw him off his game. Here you are in a major championship trying to win your fourth major, you're six, seven holes to go, and you're looking for someone's ball. I mean, it's sort of like if if, uh, if, if, say, uh, LeBron James had to fix the net, you know, the net was ripped, he had to go fix it, or Tom Brady had to go line the field in the middle of the game. Like, there had to be a point where Brooks could just say, could someone else please look? I know what's courtesy and know what you're supposed to, mm -hmm. but the fact is, I think it totally, he's in the rocks. Like, he's not just walking around looking. He's, like, in the woods, walking around, trying to find a stupid ball. It's not even his ball. And it would be nice if Varner would have just played a provisional or just, just said, you know, just took a drop because it's say he can't find the ball. But it was, I thought that really threw him out of his, off his game because at one point, Dustin Johnson 
was that he Brooks fell down to nine under and DJ was eight, but then he bogeyed to make it at seven. And the crowd was chanting, "Go Dustin, go Dustin!" And you could hear the crowds, like you could hear Dustin Johnson's crowd screaming that for Dustin Johnson from that side, because you know he was doing well. But at the same time, they were they were heckling Brooks because he's not getting the love of the fans. Like even Tiger was there, Brooks is shooting one of the greatest rounds of golf you could ever imagine. He made like a thirty foot putt. People would just clap nicely. Tiger makes a two foot putt. People were going crazy. So there's still, as much as Brooks is this great player, the fans have not embraced him so much. And, uh, but he had a, um, but on 17, he, uh, he bogeyed again and dropped him down to minus eight. So at that point, uh, Dustin was at six under, he's at eight under. And, uh, um, and then, but on 18, he had an awful drive, but somehow parred the hole and was able to win by two strokes. So it could have been this, I mean, really, he left a lot of. If he would have made those easy putts, not had the four bogeys in a row, he's going to win by seven, eight strokes. But in the end, he wins by two, and he has his fourth major. And it was, uh, he's now won two tournaments in New York. You would think he'd be popular in New York because he's won the two major golf tournaments in two years in New York, New York City. You know, Ira, do you think part of it is that the fans don't embrace him because of his lack of enthusiasm, because he's so. Um, and, and I'm not blasting him as bad as some of the media today. This is how he plays. If this is what it takes for him to be focused, for him to not be animated and lively, good for you. He's a great golfer. Whatever works. But do you think that's a part of it? And how do you feel about you know him saying this was the most uh, excited he's ever been? It was one fist pump. Well, I, I think it's great. I mean, I think he plays. I'm going to compare him to Roger Federer. Because Federer came around when Sampras was playing. And people, Federer won Wimbledon, and people were like, Who's this guy? He has perfect hair. He has these perfect strokes. Doesn't show much emotion at all. And we're used to the McEnroe's. And even Sampras had emotion and those things. And, and, and he sort of had that thing. But, of course, Federer is now the most popular tennis player of all time. So the point is, Brooks is only 29 years old. He's won four majors. If in seven years he's going for 14 or 15, this is going to change. I mean, you notice sort of at the end, like, people were still like, wow, this guy is really good. People want to root for winners. And he's done. And he, he said that he used it to motivate. He's, he, I, but I just, his calmness, like, I was shocked when he had four of those bogeys in a row. I, I, I was, I was, and he said he's never done that before. He's never had four bogeys in a row. And, but he was fueled by that, um, uh, uh, Brandon Shambly, one of the commentators, said he would never put Brooks up there with Rory and Tiger. Now, of course, you don't put him up with Tiger, but you, could, of course, could put him up there with, with Rory. He's won as many majors as he has. So the point is, I think he uses that to motivate him, but I think he's, he's fine. I mean, he went on Barstool Sports and made some comments, and people were saying, like, whenever he made a good putt, he calls it a good, or good shot. He calls it, uh, he always likes to say Gucci. It's a Gucci shot. And I know other golfers use that same term, but so everybody was shouting, that's Gucci, that's Gucci <laughs> to him. I mean, he's not, he's, it's like he's not this Arnold Palmer glad-handing everybody, but I think people, I think people will turn around to like him eventually. He just has to keep winning. Now, he, Unfortunately for him, he has probably win probably nine or ten majors before he gets the love that a guy like Justin Thomas gets. And Ricky, Ricky Fowler, who's won no majors, and Rick, Justin Thomas has won. But um, he's not like a negative guy. He's not yelling at the crowd, but he's okay. It's, he, the fact that he controls his emotions is what lets him win these tournaments. And the fact that he knows how to play smart, and I think that's why he's going to win majors. I mean, he said, look, I'm going for double digits. That's how many majors he thinks he can win. He only had four bogeys in a row. One, uh, never, in his, <laughs> never in his life or one time. I, I do that every week. Weekend, so maybe I got something on Brooks Kepka. Seven twenty-six. We're just about five minutes away from being jo- uh, joined by John Eisenberg, author of the League. This is going to be a great interview. So stick around. But first, Ira, we love horse racing on this show. And has there been a weirder 
start to the big three than than these two races that we got. Um, the Preakness was crazy again with Bodie Express, uh, you know, getting out of the box and going on autopilot. So uh, tell us about the Preakness. It was a wild one. Well, I think Bodie Express, now, if people didn't watch the race, Warwell won the race. Warwell was the horse that in the Kentucky Derby was interfered with that ended up finishing back at like eighth, but was able because, it, but, but, but in this race, won the race. No interference at all. Started from the first position. People said, oh, that's a bad position. It's going to get interference just like Kentucky Derby. Just ran. Nobody was in front of the whole place. I mean, he actually was in second part of the race, but it, was, but it ran the rail the whole way around and, and won. We went wire to wire and won the race. Um, it was the fastest time since Curlin in 2007. Actually, faster than Justified American Pharaoh, who were Triple Crown winners, but they won in the mud. Uh, this is a horse that was ninth in the Louisiana Derby, but he won the Rising Star in Louisiana. Uh, but it was, uh, it, w- it was, it was. It was very. It was a weird race. There was uh, um, 140,000 people at the race, so they got great attendance. But Bo- the whole idea about Bodie Express, who people questioned should even be in the race because it was not a really that good horse, but ran in the Derby, and the jockey fell off. It bucked, and the jockey. It was really a part of a combination of the fact that the person who was loading it kept holding the horse. So when the gate opened, he was still holding the horse. So the horse then went down and then went back up and threw the jo- uh, John Velasquez, the pr- pr- very professional jockey, very experienced jockey, off the horse, and then Bodie Express just ran the race and it was hilarious just to keep watching it and it could have been very dangerous but it just wanted to keep running around and actually finished ahead of two horses and when they tried to send other horses out it said leave me alone i want to keep running and uh was very it was like almost the uh, tesla autopilot of horse racing in the future in terms of what they were able to do but improbable the favorite uh again did not do well it was like improbable was the second favorite in the in the kentucky derby and the first favorite here and uh finished sixth but they put the jockey mike smith that was the jockey for justify on it was a Baffert horse and just didn't fire. Um, so I don't know, but it was it was it was one of those things where you're thinking, wow, War Wolf, they would have been interfered with maximum security, might have won the Kentucky Derby, would have won the Preakness, and would potentially be going for the Triple Crown right now. It, it was interesting to see them send the, you know the guy on a horse out after Bodie Express. What was he going to do? Grab the reins and try to slow him down? I mean, I guess you know the horses get more comfortable when there's another one around him. But Bodie Express didn't look like he was stopping for anything. Um, this was a little bit of a weird one, and now the drama with maximum security never ends here, Ira. Yeah, I mean, the owners are suing. The suing owners everybody. are demanding they want to have match races where they want to bring all the other racers again. And I mean, stuff that's nothing is going to happen at all. I, mean, I don't even think Max Security is going to run in the, in the Belmont. But the point is, is that it, 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 it's, in 1968, Dancer's Image was disqualified for a failed drug test in the Kentucky Derby. The only other time a horse was disqualified. That went on for years. For four years, the <laughs> decision was went through the courts because they said that this drug test, which then a couple years later was allowed in the sport. So there was a question whether the test should have been allowed or wasn't allowed, or was it allowed in the system, was it taken wrong? And a lot of people thought it was because of the money that Dancer's Image, uh, the, the owner of Dancer's Image was very pro-civil uh, rights, and they felt it was a, something against him. So in terms of that, but it was... It's, you, I would expect that two years from now, you're going to hear this thing on ESPN, maximum security loses or whatever, a challenge or whatever, because this is going to be something that's going to be in the courts and the way they go about it. But I, I would be shocked that a court would ever overturn a decision. It didn't seem like, first of all, maximum security did interfere, and usually courts allow the stores at the race to make a determination about what happened. As long as they're followed, using the rules fairly, then I can't see that decision. But maximum security donors are definitely causing a lot of stir. It's time to bring in John Eisenberg 
Greenberg. He's the author of The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire, and a, a ton of other great books. John, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be with you. It, and it's great to have you. Ira, what do you have for John? John, I, um, thanks a lot for coming on my show. I appreciate it. Um, I read your book in last week, and it was it's absolutely tremendous. Um, it is certainly everyone loves the NFL, and we see what the NFL is. And, and I, the draft, when there's 300,000 people in Nashville down the street, it seemed like just watching a draft. Uh, and the Super Bowl and the tickets are the minimum ticket is $3,000 to get in. But you go back to a time when the NFL wasn't like that. And, and I just, I'm going to throw a couple things out that were funny in your book that, that you said that, in, Tim, first of all, Tim Mara bought the Giants for $500. $500. It used to be that how about the quarterback for the Giants was arrested, and the, his reason he was arrested was not for drinking or for other things, but because he played football on Sunday in Pennsylvania violating blue laws, so that was a problem. Right. And that the star player on the Giants, Ben Friedman, he left the team being the star player because he went to be assistant football coach at Yale, where he'd make more money as an assistant football coach. So I guess if Eli Manning might leave the Giants to go be the assistant football coach at Yale. But just some of those facts are just, you really set, it's not, set the tone about how college football dominated the 20s and 30s, and this NFL was a joke, and, you, and these owners put it together. So talk about little about in terms of, of what college football, where pro football was in the 20s and 30s uh, at the time, and where college football was. Well, what you need to understand, first of all, thank you for those kind words, and, and what you need to understand, sort of, I mean, you really did get sort of down to the nitty-gritty when uh, you start researching this stuff, as I did, the history of football. I mean, football's original sort of role in society was character build. It was a character building exercise for young men, young boys. And uh, in lieu of war, you know, we put them on the gridiron, as they called it, and and so that's why you saw high school football become popular and college football become popular. It was considered a very pure exercise, and the idea of paying someone to play football for 50 years after it was started was just considered the worst. I mean, there were purists that said you would never do that. You're going to ruin football if you pay someone. So uh, that's why high school and college football were popular first. And the pros, the, the NFL started in 1920, and the pros fought that. I mean, they, they, they had that going against them for many years, that uh, people thought it was just abhorrent to pay someone to play football, and as a result, yeah, these guys, you know, you're going to be the coach at Yale or whatever. They didn't make any money playing pro football. A lot of people, you know, it was considered the people that played football, pro football were the ones that didn't have anything better to do. Maybe they weren't college grads, and they were kind of ne'er-do-wells, and, and at least that was a perception. And so really the first 15 years of the NFL, they fought that constantly, just the idea of being paid at all, and then the perception that these guys were just sort of losers, you know, they had nothing better to do. Yeah, and, and but it's amazing the Giants had could have teams that have like a thousand people, two thousand go to the game, whereas Army <clears throat> played Notre Dame in front of eighty thousand fans. So it's very yep. weird. It was like it was not if, if people say someone once said it was like WNBA to NBA. It wasn't even comparison. It, the college football was so much more dominant, and to the point where the Big Ten said that you wrote in your book that if a player went to uh, pro football, he would lose his letter. So if you lettered at Michigan and then you decide to play pro football, like Tom Brady would lose his letter and not be a letterman yeah. anymore. At yeah, yeah. When I was talking about those purists, yeah, that was how the college people fought it. 
Fielding Yost was the coach at Michigan, very famous coach. And yeah, he said, I'm going to take away their letters. Anybody that's done that. And I do think they were worried. Uh, you know, I think they felt like, well, these guys, you know, they get out of college and they're big strapping men now. And, you know, they, they pretty quickly became apparent they could play a pretty good brand of football within 10 or 15 years. Instead of being a 20 year old, how about a 28 year old that's fully developed and strong, could really throw a good pass or, or a tough block or tackle harder. There's a lot of uh, violence. And so I think some of these college people have a little worried very quickly that the caliber of football might be pretty good. And it was the Giants, in fact, that beat, uh, I think it was 1930, 10 years in, that uh, Notre Dame, who was, the, of course, the great team of that era, brought an all-star team to New York to play the Giants. For a, It was a charity game, and the Giants whipped them, just whipped them. And uh, Newt Rockney was not happy. And I think from that point on, the colleges were a, a little bit worried that, you know, pro football might could take off one day because it was a better brand of football. Um, one of the big changes, you, there's, I mean, for, we just throw this name out, is Red Grange, because he was sort of like the first major cultural player that decided to go into the pros, and suddenly he's drawing a lot of people. That was, I think, you wrote in the book that, that, was, uh, that they took Red Grange's playing games everywhere. They were playing in Florida and playing in L.A., and, and it was barnstorming around the country in terms of Chicago's team, what he was on originally, was playing it, and what the impact that someone like Red Grange had, uh, you know, almost like the Babe Ruth sort of, of football. Yes, yes. He turned pro in 1925. He just finished his eligibility at Illinois his senior year. He's a huge, he's on the cover of Time magazine, you know, a uh, huge uh, cultural sensation, really. And so, yeah, the, he signed uh, he, he signed with an agent, uh, you know, a guy that sort of cut a deal for him with Hallis, George Hallis and the Bears. And, yeah, they went around the country, and the country was just uh, very excited to see him play. And, uh, I mean, it didn't really matter that he was in the NFL. I mean, it was, there was a lot of exhibition games and all that. They just wanted to see Red Grange. But he did introduce the whole idea of post-college football. Uh, there really was no thought of it until then. And then suddenly it was, yeah, look, you, you know, you can play after you're done playing college ball. So he, he brought that to light. And, uh, of course, then went on to play for a number of years in the NFL, became a real ambassador of professional football. And then he was in the media, he did radio in Chicago for years. One of the real characters or citizens of the professional game for really years. And so uh, one of the great figures on the football landscape. And then you spend the book talking about the owners, the original owners of the league. Um, names that we know now, like Hallis of Chicago, but the Rooney family still owns the Steelers. Um, the Steelers were also called the Hope Harveys and the Majestic Radios. So I think that would be great if we were called the Pittsburgh. <laughs> I'm a huge Steelers fan, but the Pittsburgh Majestic Radios, that would be the greatest right. name of a team. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but it's funny that you've talked about how Rooney was a gambler. Uh, he owned saloons. Uh, um, Tim Marrow spent his whole day at uh, Belmont Park in Saratoga running a bookmaking operation at the parks. These were not; these are not the uh, the you know like the corporate titans of America that created these these games. Talk a little about those owners and 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 what you know they had a passion for the game, of course, but what that what the type of person was that actually created this league that now is, of course, the most valuable sports league of all time. Yeah, they just had an idea. They certainly didn't have any money. It's really the reason I wrote the book. I like my books. It's my 10th one. I like for them to tell larger stories than just the sports. And, and really, uh, the story of the NFL, 
uh, the survival and growth of the NFL. I mean, it's no different than like Henry Ford in the car or the cathode ray tube in the TV. I mean, it's one of the real stories of 20th century America. And this is a story of 20th century America. These guys are sons of immigrants, all of them, for almost, uh, you know, first generation in their country, born in America. Uh, you know, Mara was a son of a cop, Irish cop. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of them, their parents immigrated here. And so they did not come from wealth. Uh, they did not inherit wealth, uh, Burt Bell being the only exception. Uh, and they, no one was going to swoop in and save them. These were, you know, they were getting by on their wits. They were gamblers, bookies. Uh, you know, George Preston Marshall of the Redskins, you know, he made some money in the laundry business and who knows what he was doing on the side. So uh, they, they were just hustlers. It's really what they were. And they had an idea and they stuck with it. And as I said, it's really no different than, you know, the car. The, and, and, and then it wound up being something that America, I mean, they worked on the game uh, over and over, year after year. They refined it. They made it different from college football. They elevated it and eventually they created a game that America could not live without, really, pro football. And so it's their creation. It's these owners, no question. They were ones that shepherded the game through the first 30 years when the league could have died. It could have died and, and was not very popular. And they were the ones that, that carried it off by the lapels and set it up to succeed. And you highlight Mara and Hallis uh, as being just the, the founding fathers to some extent in terms of football, because they, in Chicago, Mara, and in Chicago, uh, Hallis, they recognized at first that, that they were, they, of course, they could get whatever talent they wanted. When Burt Bell from Philadelphia said, I want to have a draft, they could have said, no, we don't want a draft. We want to pick our own teams. We have more money. We have everything. We want, you know, all the other teams would rather just play in New York. You'd make more money that way. But they realized, no, we have to have even parity. You have to play teams. Teams have to be, you can't just have the same teams win every year. So much so that when Wellington Mara, you wrote in your book, that Wellington Mara wanted to have the, uh, when he was picking the players, he had his whole draft ledger, his, his draft board. And Tim said, you have to share your draft board with the other teams. It's yeah. not fair that we have all the information but that was like back in those days like we look at it now as parody and what you're supposed to do but back in those days they could have just said forget it you know this is we're just going to have the number one team and everybody else is going to lose so you really highlighted what what and that's how that turned out to be what how television money was split going forward but but really you really highlighted mara and hallis in terms of how they set the league up well reason being they were the most successful early on the giants were the first team that really drew good crowds and created something of a sensation in new york and so they, they, and then the Bears slowly but surely took off, had really good teams, and uh, people came. And yes, they, they could have just continued to dominate that league, and they were, nobody was more competitive than Hal, as he loved winning, uh, and would do anything. He would cheat. He, his brother was a, he had his brother as a ref in some of the championship games. I mean, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a lawless world, and he took advantage of it. However, uh, what they sort of instinctively understood, Hallis and Mara, and really all of them understood, was that, yes, they tried to beat each other like crazy, but they were partners. They were partners in the uh, business of professional football. And if they didn't work together, uh, you know, uh, the, they would all go down. I mean, they had to have a competitive league, an interesting league, couldn't have the same teams winning every year. These are things that they just sort of instinctively understood. And and were willing to to hurt their own teams. It's amazing in hindsight. You would you think you'd never see it today. There is a little bit of it still going on in the NFL. I think there is some understanding that 
maybe uh, someone who's been around the league in a while can counsel a, a newcomer on sort of how to operate and everything, because they are still partners. I mean, it still goes on today. And so uh, these guys laid that foundation of working together. And it really is the story of the success of the NFL, because they were willing to work together uh, for the greater good, uh, even hurting their own team sometimes. And these are guys that desperately wanted to beat each other. So it's quite a duality there and an amazing thing in hindsight. We're talking to John Eisenberg on Iron Sports. He authored the book, The League. Uh, it's out in hardcover, and I think it's coming out in paperback this fall, if I'm correct, John? That's correct. It's coming out in paperback this fall. Uh, it is available now in hardcover and also the e-version, uh, Kindle, Kindle version, uh, and Audible. Tons of people are doing this. I can't tell you how many people I'm hearing from that are downloading it and listening to it. A lot of con- consumers that way. So, yes, any number of ways to, to, to take this book on. And, John, one final question is that we talk, I, how much discussion every year is about rule changes? Is it a catch? Is it not a catch? Overtime rules, this rule change, that rule change. But when you go, you start talking in the 20s and 30s, they were talking, I felt like I'm back, you know, with Roger Goodell should be back then. <laughs> you know, Michael Irvin, yeah. I mean, not Michael, but uh, uh, you talk about in terms of the, the issues that were they were dealing with in the 20s and 30s, Des Bryant, not Michael Irvin, Des Bryant, the 20s and 30s, about um, about rules, and they were they were upset that nobody was scoring in their games, and 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 about how they were tweaking the rules to make the offenses more uh, more explosive. Well, they never stopped, and 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 I tell you one thing: having researched this book, you understand that what's going on today and goes on every year with the catch rule and all that is part of a continuum. It really is. It is no different than what was happening in the '30s, the '40s, and it's really the essence of of the league. I mean, I, I interviewed George Hallis's mother, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, daughter, George Hallis's daughter, Virginia McCaskey, uh, is still alive. She's 95 years old. She owns the Bears. Her sons run the Bears. Uh, she owns the Chicago Bears. I interviewed her, and I asked her in my interview, I said, what, what could your dad's generation tell, uh, you know, what, what lesson do they have that today's owners could heed? And she said, focus on the game always. The game comes first, you know. You need to always be paying attention to it, make it better, do what you can. And and what she was intimating without saying this is more so than the business of the game. I'm not sure today's owners always follow that rule. However, they do pay attention to the rules constantly. If something's wrong with the game, then you're going to have problems. And the NFL has its share of problems. And, you know, I think some of them are related to the game, and they're always trying to tweak it. And uh, really, uh, that's first and foremost with these guys. Take care of your game, make it as good as it can be, and you'll be fine. John, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, your book, The League, I, I would highly recommend anyone read it. It's a great read. It's very interesting. As someone who loves to read history but also get the sports aspect of it, uh, it's just it's a great book, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on my show, and, uh, and we'd love to have you on again uh, for your next book. Uh, well, I appreciate that a lot. Thanks for the kind words, and uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. 745, you're listening to I Run Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Great interview there with John Eisenberg. Ira, I don't want to see it happen. I thought it was probably going to happen or something close to what we might see tonight, Golden State sweeping Portland. Uh, tell us about this series so far, and what do you think is going to happen here? I, I want to tell you something. I do want to happen because they... I, Golden State right now is 
playing how you're supposed to play basketball. I just think this is just tremendous basketball. I'm not, they're not better without Durant. Durant is tremendous. But it has motivated this team. They, the passing, the, the way the team is passing, the way they're running the court, they're not just shooting the threes. I mean, you watch Houston, you're thinking, I, I watch basketball all year round. I'm like, the game is dying. The shooting the threes is out of control. They're taking, no one's passing. No one's, they're not taking mid-range shots. It's just a three-point shooting competition for horse. And I just, it's so boring to watch. Golden State has brought it back. Draymond Green, who I have bashed, bashed constantly. Uh, I felt he is a shell of himself for the last two years. Uh, that is just, he's just living on reputation. But he lost 20 pounds after the All-Star break. And suddenly, with Durant out, he is now taking total control. You're now like, wow, this Draymond Green is the person that I used to say before Durant got there was the MVP of the team over Curry and Thompson. And then you're seeing Curry just make shot after shot, handle the ball well, be amazing. And the bench that was getting, like when Durant went out, Everyone said, okay, Curry, Thompson, Green are going to play 45, 48 minutes. They'll have to play every minute of the game. But he's, they've actually played less minutes. You're getting McKinnon coming in the game, making key play after key play. Looney, who I bashed last year as terrible, has played great. Quinn Cook comes in there and plays great. It has been a total team effort that they're coming in. Iguodala has been injured, too. I mean, there's points in the game they're missing. Iguodala, Cousins, and Durant, and they're still up 3-0 on Portland. I mean, that first game, uh, 116-90, they will beat 116-94 in Golden State. I mean, they, they just totally blew them out. The Warriors started uh, Green, Curry, Clay, Iguodala, and Bogut. And uh, um, the Warriors were just, I mean, they just played a great Curry at 30. Um, I'm sorry, had 36 points. And, uh, and, and Draymond Green at 12 points, 10 boards, 5 assists. Uh, even like this Quinn, like what's funny when you watch Quinn Cook come in. Quinn Cook's from Duke. He did not play hardly during the year. There's games where I watched Golden State didn't play at all. But in the fourth quarter, he starts the fourth quarter. Curry's on the bench. Cook is out playing Lillard when he starts for those two or three minutes. He's draining threes, making layups. Um, and the Portland, when you're looking at how everything that Portland did, I, I think they look like a tired team. They're a team that played seven games against the Nuggets. They went to a triple overtime game or quadruple overtime game one time. Uh, they look like a tired team. Lillard said he's complaining. But they came back on Thursday. And they're leading uh, 65-50 at halftime. Uh, and, and they're like, oh, my gosh, they are actually back. They, they, they're back to play great. But the Warriors went on this great run. They were up 13. They went to a 13 nothing run. They tied at 89-89 in the third. But Portland had still at the end of the game was up. One, with four minutes to go, they're still up 108-100. And uh, Draymond Green went crazy. He's blocking shots, passing it to Looney. Curry's making threes. Even when Seth Curry made a three to make it to 111-110, Looney, Green passed it to Looney for another dunk. And then Iguodala, at the end of the game, stole the ball from Lillard, just took it out of his hands and stole it. I mean, it was, they were out-rebounded 50-37, to 37, the Warriors did, but they were still able to hold on and win the game. Green had uh, uh, 20 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists, five, 16 points, uh, 10 rebounds, 7 assists, and 5 blocks. Uh, Curry scored 37 points. Uh, Jordan Bell, another guy from the bench, came out and played great. And it was, it was great just to see just, just I, it, they really are playing just amazing basketball. I mean, the first half, I'm like, oh, my God, they're in trouble. They're not going to do well. They go to Portland, then a game three. Uh, they're down 18 points. Uh, Iguodala is hurt. Uh, they look terrible. The, uh, Golden State is getting totally blown out of the game. I think this is another complete blowout. But then at halftime, they're still down 13. But in the second half, they just the Warriors going an 18-3 run. Warrior Curry is draining threes. Green is taking 
totally taking over the game. And, uh, and again, Quinn Cook did well. And Lillard is just missing shot after shot. McCollum was cold. I mean, at one point, Lillard was one for six from three. McCollum was one for six for three. And, uh, and it's just, it was just, it was just, they just took over the lead and won the game. Uh, again, Curry scored 36 more points. Green, 20 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists. Um, and then if you look at the minutes, Jordan Bell, 15 minutes, 6 points. McKinney, 21 minutes. He scored hit 9 rebounds and, and, and 4 points. Looney, 27 minutes. He had 8 points and 3 rebounds. Cook, Livingston, they all played great. The whole bench came in. And uh, it was just... It was a tremendous performance. I, I just, they're not going to, they are, they need Durant back. They would be great if he, if, I don't know if they can win without him, but well, the way they're playing now is just a tremendous basketball. Tremendous to watch. It's fun to watch. I can't wait to watch it. And I know people like you, Mike, don't like the Warriors because they're play, but they are just, they're great to watch. They're fun. No, I, I agree with you that this team looks better. It's ridiculous people saying they're better without Kevin Durant, but they do look better and they're more fun to watch. And you know what I was really thinking? Draymond must listen to Iron Sports because he's been blowing up you know, ever since he got the uh, time to shine after you bashing him constantly. He, he's here to play. And the one thing, and Mike, you know, one thing Draymond did, they had a mic the last game. And it, I was critical of Draymond because I go to so many games, and he has the LeBron effect where he gets fouled, he's flopping on the ground, he's yelling at the refs, he's yelling at this. That's all ended now. He is jumping back up, he's running down. And I heard an interview with him say, well, he saw his kid, I guess the kids are a couple years old, they were imitating him. And they're like, I don't want my kids, I don't want young kids to imitate me. So he's actually cleaned up his act. So he was mic'd during the last game, and you could hear him going up to him. Jordan Bell had a wide-open dunk, wide-open dunk, missed it while they were down six points. So it was a key part of the game. And Bell was like hanging his head at a timeout, his head, towels over his head. And Draymond Green comes up to him and says, look, I missed dunks. He's missed dunks. Durant's missed dunks. We've all missed dunks. Take it easy. Get back in the game. He's, he's encouraging his teammates. He, if you listen to that tape, he was, being a, he was a leader on the court, encouraging, being the Draymond Green of three years ago when they won you know, all those games, 72 games. But I was just blown away by how he has taken the leadership of the team. He is driving. They can't, they can't, he handles the ball well. He's running the fast breaks. He's passing well. He's rebounding. He's just doing everything. And Curry and Thompson. Thompson is playing what, how he plays normally, scoring a little bit more. Curry is out of it. Curry averaged 24 points the first two rounds. Now he's at 36, 37 points. So he's playing out of his mind. And then the bench is playing so great. But uh, Port, look, it's always hard to win that fourth game. No team has ever come back from 3-0. So you never say never, though. But, but still, it looks like Golden State could finish it off tonight. If not tonight, then a Wednesday uh, game five in Golden State. We do have a, a little bit more parity going on with Milwaukee and Toronto. They're going to play uh, Game Four on Tuesday night. It's two to one Milwaukee in that series. How do we get here, I? Well, I didn't think it was going to be close. Milwaukee, the first two games, completely destroyed Toronto in Milwaukee. They were, I mean, it, it, they were both games were were were, uh, were just easily. I mean, the first game was was one hundred eight one hundred, and the second one was one twenty five one hundred three, uh, and and Giannis. Just dominate. I mean, they, they just give the, they give the ball to Giannis. He's the only. He's six eleven, very super strong. He was like Shaquille O'Neal as a point guard. They can handle the ball, and and then he has shooters everywhere. I mean, what's amazing is that Connaughton, Ilasova, uh, Mirasic. I mean, these are names. If you watch them play, they all play hard. Middleton. Everyone on that team shoots threes. I the problem I have with the team is that like Bledsoe is in the game who actually doesn't shoot threes that well. But it was it was it was. Uh, 
it, you know, in the first in the first game and on game the, the, the one they won one away one hundred, uh, Toronto had zero points in the last ten possessions. I mean, they were they were up one hundred ninety eight with three thirty to go, and they don't score the rest of the game. But that's because they are, because Milwaukee was able to put good defense in, play amazing, and then the game they blew, they totally blew out. It was sixty four thirty nine at the half, and again it was just a complete. Uh, I mean, Leonard played great; he had thirty one points, but Lowry was back to his old ways. He was terrible. Gasol shot one for nine, but Giannis scored thirty points. Uh, but you look at like Brogdon for when I keep saying these names from Milwaukee. Brogdon is the point guard for Virginia, who. Uh, was hurt most of the, for, for for the playoffs. Who missed all the playoffs. Just came back, but was a rookie of the year two years ago. But he comes in in valuable time. George Hill bounced around the league. He was a star for the Pacers, then was star for the Spurs, and then sort of like disappeared a little and was on Cleveland's team last year. But he's come out and had some big games. But uh, the game was last night. I mean, I was lucky. I was flying out here. It was delayed in an airport, and it was like the games in the fourth quarter, and there was maybe like two people at this bar, and then by the end of the fourth quarter, there were fifty people. Everybody's crowding around, <laughs> and sounds on. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was tremendous. I mean, they um, they were up uh, in, the, in the first in the regular, in the regular time. Uh, Leonard was up. Uh, scored, make it one twelve, one ten. So you thought Toronto was going to win the game, but uh, but they actually were able to, to to tie. It was it was just a tremendous uh, comeback in terms of at the first overtime and the regular in the regular session. Toronto had the lead. I mean, Toronto had the lead, and Milwaukee was able to come back and tie it. But finally, in the second overtime. Uh, Toronto with Leonard was able to hit the key shots. I mean, everybody's giving Leonard this credit like he's the greatest player. He missed shots at the end of regular season, the regular, the regular, the regular session. He missed it off the end of the first overtime, but he didn't really hit the game-winning shot. He had a dunk at the end of the game, but Siakam had the big block on uh, uh, the big block on uh, on a shot from uh, Milwaukee. But Giannis fouled out. I mean, it's a weird game. Is that Lowry fouled out for Toronto in regular session, and then in overtime, uh, Giannis fouled out. And I think this is, was a good learning experience from Milwaukee. They lost the game, uh, 118-112. But I, you could just see that I think it's going to motivate them for this next game. They're a very young team, and it was a very tough game. But I, I, I think they're the better. They have just more weapons than Milwaukee has. So I would, I still, I mean, sorry, more, more weapons than Toronto mm-hmm. has. Yeah. So I do expect Milwaukee to play Golden State in the finals. And if they both finish these series early, they don't play for another week. Uh, if because Golden State wants to finish tonight because they won't play till next Thursday, so they have ten days off. Um, Ira, I think I could feel the collective sigh slash groan slash whimper coming from New York here in West Palm Beach um, last Thursday night when it was determined that the Knicks would not be picking first or second in the upcoming draft. They're going to be picking third, but you think that this might not be a bad thing for Zion. Well, it actually, well, going into the draft, going into the lottery, they're down to four teams. So they do, they, they, they actually do it one way and then they reveal it the other. But it was the Lakers, the Knicks, Memphis, and New Orleans. So you have the two Sexy cities, the Lakers and the Knicks, and then Memphis and New Orleans. And my girlfriend at the time texted me, and she said she it should he should go to he should go to New Orleans. He'll love it there. He'll be great there, and whatever. And I, no one was thinking like I was in New York at the time, and everyone was saying he was going to go. You know, everyone was thinking New York, New York. The whole bar was packed, ready for people to say New York. And then it comes out that uh, the the Lakers were eliminated, and then the the Knicks were that when Lakers were given the fourth pick, the Knicks were given the third pick. At the time, the Lakers had a two percent chance. 
uh, the Knicks had a 14% chance, Memphis 6%, and New Orleans had 6 So the, the Knicks actually had the better chance, and they ended up getting the third pick, and New Orleans got Zion. Well, they didn't get Zion, but they got the chance to draft with the first pick. Um, and I think it's great. Like, I thought, I think it's a great move for him. Um, I think the great thing about NBA is that you can go to a small market and be successful. You don't have to have stars in that market. And whether it's Dwayne Wade, I think it's, it's that success of what we talked about, John Eisenberg, in football. Uh, the success of like Carl Malone in Utah and Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City and all these other, the fact that everybody can be competitive. And I think he's from the South. He's from South Carolina. Uh, New Orleans is a very, they love their sports teams. They don't support the basketball team that well, but this will, I think, encourage them to. But they certainly love their football team. It's a fun town to live in. It's not the media spotlight at all that New York or UCLA. I mean, Think of the media spotlight in New York or L.A. It would be just tremendous on Zion. All, it would poke all his flaws out. Everything would be criticizing him all the time. Now he can just be the king of New Orleans at least for five years until the Lakers or Knicks come after him. But I think, it was, uh, it was, I think he's going to do well in New Orleans. And Anthony Davis is their star, and he still comes out and says, I want out there. And I feel bad for the, for the team because here their star is saying, I don't want to be part of this team anymore. I want to be gone. So it's like and the fans are booing him. So they should trade Anthony Davis. They should get some other draft picks or, or bring build a great young team, and, uh, and, and, and I, th- I think he's going to do great in New Orleans. I think it was a great landing spot for him. Uh, uh, Alvin Gentry is a very good coach there, and I think he's gonna be, it's going to be a good situation. Um, John Morant Rant is going to go the second, but probably go to Memphis as the, with the second pick. And R.J. Barrett from Duke, Zion's teammate, is probably going to go to New York. Now, interestingly enough, New York potentially could trade their third pick for Anthony Davis, and maybe R.J. Barrett would go and team with Zion again down in New Orleans. But, and then maybe a guy like Darius Garland would go from Vanderbilt would go to the Lakers. But I think in the all, it was, I think it's not, like I think everyone was hoping he would go to the Lakers or the Knicks, but um, I think it's going to work out well for him and the league also. You know, a lot of people were saying, yeah, that's, you know, all, everybody on social media, how this is bad for the league. This is great for the league. The Knicks sell out every night regardless. It doesn't matter if he's there or not as far as the league is concerned. They'd rather have a team which would be having probably the worst attendance in the league if AD leaves and, and there's, you know, there's no superstar there. Now they have a superstar. They can market New Orleans. This is great for, for, for the NBA. Um, Ira, real quick, NHL. It's been, uh, it's been interesting so far, and this has been, you know, for getting some of the, the smaller seeds in, We've gotten some excellent hockey here in the two conference finals. Well, Boston clinching over Carolina in four games. Um, I think, I don't know what it was more, uh, took a rasp, the goalie for Boston, um, seventh career shutout, and he actually shut out the last in the, when they beat Columbus 2, 3 nothing. Uh, Boston outscored Carolina 17-5 in the series. Um, just they've had seven straight wins. I mean, it, 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 this is one of those things where you're playing great hockey and you have a great goalie and you're in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, this is, everything's coming together for Boston. Now, of course, they'll probably get swept in the Stanley Cup Finals, but and they're and, and they're just tremendous on the power play. They're converting 33 percent, which is really really high in terms of their power play percentage. So they're playing really well and uh, to win two one on Tuesday and I think I'm back on Thursday and clinch it for nothing. And the Carolina fans are great when the game is over 
they're losing the game and there's no chance to win. And for the last like 10 minutes of the game, the fans were standing, giving their team a standing ovation. And you can see how, now here's a team that's in Raleigh, North Carolina, that has so much passion and enthusiasm. And that's one good thing about basketball and hockey. And we talked about these small markets is that these teams, these cities rally around their teams uh, in a way that, that sometimes the big markets don't. You're not getting the rally. People were booing the Lakers at the end of the year. So, uh, and of course, they're booing the Knicks. But I think it's nice to see that. And it's, uh, it was good for Carolina, but Boston, it goes on for the Stanley, to the Stanley Cup final against San Jose or St. Louis. And, and, you know, the Western Conference, especially over the last decade, the Eastern Conference is about flash. They've got the Sidney Crosbys. They've got the Ovechkins. They've got Tampa Bay. These teams play fast. They score a lot of goals. The West is not like that. They beat the crap out of each other. And the, the, you want guys like Logan Couture on uh, San Jose, who's just an absolute phenom. But not only is he very good, he's massive. And he's not afraid to get down, get dirty, like their captain Pavelski, who's been um, hurt as well. St. Louis kind of bucks the trend on that. And they're a little bit more talent, a little bit more speedster than they are um, physicality. And that's why I think this series has just been been amazing. And it's also Joe Thornton. Is, I mean, you read his bio for San Jose. And first of all, the beard he has. Is, I mean, he's, I think he's at James Harden's level now of his beard, but he looks like he's 100 years old. But he was drafted in the first, he was the first pick in 1997 by Boston. And he was, you know, of course, captain of the team, played there seven years, three as the captain of the team, and then left sort of acrimoniously during the lockout and then played the rest of his career in San Jose. So he's a Hall of Fame player, seven years in Boston. Boy, it would be amazing if he could go against Boston, and he's probably going to retire in the next year or two um, uh, in his fi- in the final go-round. And he's played great for San Jose. He's involved in everything. But, I mean, it's been it's 2-2, um, and um, St. Louis won Friday night 2-1 to even the series. And that was just, again, yeah, you want to see hard Hits. I mean, the every it's almost every every possession has a hit, and they're playing. You know, it's it's very it's very evenly matched. Two teams that are just doing everything to win. I mean, this goes to game seven. I don't know what's going to happen. It'll be like three or four overtimes in a game seven before someone wins this. And I can't wait to see what happens. Um, Ira, before we wrap this up, boxing might be in the best shape that it's been in years because we've got some serious heavyweights. Well, Wilder fought Brazil. He made news because he said. Um, he, uh, he was fighting in Brooklyn and he's, and I've never, I thought, I've thought he's been overrated. I really do. But he's starting now. He's actually someone, someone could be overrated and then start to be rated the right way per se, because he's just knocking people out. He's like 40 wins, 39 by knockouts. And, and he played, he fought Dominic Brazil and, and they had, they hate each other. They literally are true hate among each other. Uh, Wilder said, I'm going to kill him. And people said, you can't really say that. But Wilder said, look, he could kill me. And they went back and forth. And, but in, I'm trying to watch the basketball game and watch that. And it was over in like, Two minutes in the first round, just totally knocks him out. Joshua, Anthony Joshua, now fights in New York on uh, uh, the week, two weeks from now, uh, for the first time in America. So that'll be exciting to see him. And of course, they're going to fight in Tyson Fury, who fought a great draw against Wilder. Uh, uh, actually, lost to Wilder um, uh, uh, last year. Is still in the mix too. So you got three really good heavyweights. But a Wilder Joshua fight would be amazing. But that was a good. It was. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in terms. We haven't really had heavyweight fight in America in a long since Tyson almost and you know what that wilder punch was about as 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 powerful as a Tyson punch I felt it from the couch that was just absolutely ridiculous great knockout if you haven't seen it go ahead and google that before we wrap it up let's talk a little tennis um 
Nadal, I'm rushing out to tennis. I'm rushing out to golf. I'm trying to watch Nadal Djokovic. Nadal beats Djokovic 6-0 in the first, time, first set. They have played 142 sets the first time Nadal ever blanked Djokovic in a set. And then Djokovic comes back and wins 6-4. And then I'm like on the way and I'm like, you know, texting and Googling trying to find out what happened. And then uh, Nadal ended up winning 6-1 in, uh, in the third to win the Italian Open, which is viewed as a, an elite event. So in two weeks, they start the French Open, just to give you where everybody is right now. Federer's at 20 majors, Nadal at 17, Djokovic at 15. Federer's actually going to play uh, the French Open this year. He sat out the last couple years. So it's really gearing up for, I mean, this is the, this is the end. Like, this is it for men's tennis because <laughs> the, the young, younger players are just too inconsistent. And Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are just so much better than everybody else. Uh, and just to enjoy these great champions playing at this high level at, at their, at the, with their experience and at their ages is just tremendous. And so I'm just relishing this because I know that five years from now, I'm not, we're not going to have any of this. Djokovic's going to be retired. Nadal and Federer will be retired. And I don't, I'm just nervous for what tennis is. But this, Nadal and Djokovic are playing at a ridiculously high level. Before we wrap it up, Ira, where are you headed this week? I don't know. We'll see. I'm definitely the NBA Finals are coming in two weeks, so I can't wait to either go. I'm definitely going to probably go to Golden State, and then I've never been to Milwaukee or Toronto, so that should be great to go to one of those arenas. But uh, we'll see. But it was uh, it was a great week to being at golf for the four days, and uh, and uh, but I'm really looking forward this week to the Stanley Cup starting, and also um, and also the uh, NBA Finals in the following week, and finishing up these two series, and then also we can talk baseball next week. We haven't talked baseball in two weeks, and then we'll have some time next week to really talk about the fact that the Mets uh, got swept by the Marlins for the first time. Uh, the Marlins, the first time the Marlins swept a team, I think, in ten years, and <laughs> uh, and then also that the Houston is playing amazingly baseball. So it'll be good. We'll spend we'll good spend fifteen minutes uh, next week on baseball. Yeah, I can't believe Mickey Callaway didn't get the uh, boot today. But either way, we will talk next week. I want to thank John Eisenberg so much for stopping by, author of the league. Go pick that one up today on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.